I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. I've leased it from the government and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Really spectacular, spared no expense. And there's no doubt our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. And not just kids, everyone. There's a particular pebble in my shoe represents my investors. Says that they insist on outside opinions. What kind of opinions? Well, you're kind not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, let's face it, in your particular field, you're the top minds. And if I could just persuade you to sign off on the park, you know, get your endorsement, maybe even pen a, a wee testimonial, I could get back on schedule. Uh, schedule. Why would they care what we think? What kind of park is this? It's right up your alley. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Jurassic Park Retrospective Series. Boy, am I glad to see you. Join Garrett. Hey, girl, you miss me? Matt. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And Adam. You're the new guy, right? Yeah. You ever wonder why there was a job opening? As they take a tour of one of cinema's most popular franchises. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Does Garrett still wish death upon cinematic children? Anybody hear that? Will Matt make more enemies than out-of-reach dino food? Nobody move a muscle. And where does Adam stand? on yet another film series started by the beard. We're going to have to adjust to new threats that we can't imagine. Find out the answers to all these questions and more on this podcast, 65 million years in the making. What an asshole. Courtesy of Percolated Media. And remember, if something chases you... Jurassic Park 3, released July 18th, 2001, budget on this was $93 million, box office $368.8 million, and this is directed by Joe Johnston. Alright, summer of 2001, this is four years after the release of The Lost World Jurassic Park, none of us were really too high on that, but I don't think any of us were ready for dinosaurs. Adam, this was the first time you had watched this movie, why did this one pass you by the first time? I just think that summer, summer of 2001, you know, it was a new millennium. I was older. I don't think I cared whatsoever at that point. You know, the only thing I I was ready for was Spidey the next year. It's amazing how much the movie-going landscape just kind of shifted and was starting to go towards other things. But I also just remember only watching, you know, The Lost World one time. There was nothing about this one other than been one thing that made me excited and that wasn't enough to make me go to theaters back then was that one thing sam neil being back that one thing was sam neil being back. sam neil being back oh you know what two, two things i'll also say tay leone because that's always a that's always a get except when she starts talking <laughs> matt the lost world jurassic park didn't really set anything on fire were you looking forward initially the first time you watched this to see jurassic park 3 i was because this is the first one i saw in a theater I, I I was pretty amped for this, from what I recall, but I don't know if anyone I went with was as excited. Because once you get past, speaking of Spielberg, I know we didn't direct this 
once you get to sequels like Jaws 3 or Jurassic Park 3, just by its very nature, I think people are going to be skeptical where it's like, all right, how many times can we can we see people do dumb shit with dinosaurs on the prowl? I do not give a shit because this movie had pteranodons in it, which were in the first two. And I'm like, all right, I'm there as an eight year old kid. Oh, yeah. Something left over from the book, which we'll talk about when we get to that scene. I will be the second one who says that I did also I also did see this in theaters. I think it was just because I had nothing going on that weekend. And I, I, I'm not going to say I was excited for it, but I was like, oh, they, they're still making those Jurassic movies, huh? And I, I was I was there opening weekend as well. Not one I revisit too often, however. Let's talk about the making. Like I said in the beginning, this was directed by Joe Johnston. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that Steven Spielberg, before he decided to direct The Lost World, Joe Johnston said, I would like to direct this second movie. And Spielberg was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this one. But if we do a third, then you'll be in line to do it. And Spielberg did the second. We talked about that last week. Nobody was really looking forward to picking the dinosaurs back up. And putting them back on screen, but four years later, here we are. And the thing is, Spielberg is the one. He is listed as an executive producer. He had come up with a story, a really weird story, of Sam Neill living on the dinosaur island and pretty much doing his business over there. Just living like a kid in this movie. Just living on the island and just living his life around the dinosaurs. And Joe Johnson was the one who said, you know what? I don't think this guy would want to go back to the island unless he was absolutely coaxed into it. <laughs> Matt, I mean, was that would that be something you would look forward to seeing? Like Sam Neill, Alan, living on an island? Didn't Castaway come out the year before? Yes. Then no. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like they got beat to the punch. And that that sounds absurd given the way the first movie ended where it's very clear he's like all right i i don't think i'm gonna be seeing any more dinosaurs in my lifetime but speaking of the development i have to ask this question was this the first time they talked about doing like human dinosaur hybrids or was that the next one well that that one is actually the next one because there were there were a bunch of scripts floating around on the internet where the hybrids actually started in the next one. But yeah, that's definitely something we're going to talk about the next time we talk Jurassic because wow, what a, what a concept. Yeah. That was for the next film. Mm. So Joe Johnston, he comes on board and he kind of had a mess on his hands because they had a script and Spielberg and Johnston were kind of for it. They were developing it and they had spent $18 million already building the sets and things for it. And Joe Johnston got permission from Steven Spielberg five weeks before shooting to ixnay that entire script. Start from scratch. Hey, feels like it. <laughs> so they hired a couple writers, and you guys might recognize these writers. I, I know I did. Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. Those are two guys. Sideways. Yep. They did Citizen Ruth with Laura Dern. And so they were brought on, and they did a script of this. And they added a lot of the human act interactions, as you can imagine, in this. And when Alexander Payne spoke about this, around the time Jurassic World was coming out, he did say, he said, well, we did a lot of the human stuff in it, but that movie ended up being mostly action anyway, so a lot of our stuff was kind of cut out of it. But Joe Johnson almost quit this production a number of times because they were pretty much making things up as they went. And when you're dealing with a whole bunch of special effects and you're dealing with dinosaurs and water and everything else, <laughs> that is no way to make a movie, is it, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the modern way that they seem to make them. 
movie. That's true. Script not finished, and, you know, hey, we got all these effects done, write it. It's the Marvel method for comics back in the day. Now they just do it for movies. Hey, we got effects, and uh, go ahead and write some dialogue to fit in what we've storyboarded. Unbelievable. This comes out, it makes, you know, close, it makes about $370 million, which is no small take, but it's especially also the small, especially then, yeah, 2001. But I think they decided that with the downward turn that the box office has taken, we'll be done with the Jurassic franchise for a while. But like I said, I remember watching it, and the thing I remember most about it was I didn't remember a thing about it, meaning it was pretty forgettable. <laughs> so revisiting it for the first podcast I did about this, back at the old place, and now this time, I really did did not remember a thing except for the fact that Alan is back, Laura Dern is kind of back, <laughs> and and we have more dinosaurs. So that's the making of this. You guys have anything to add before we jump into the plot? Such as it is. What's that? Such as it is, yeah. Such as it is, yeah. <laughs> we open up on a, on a boy and a man. They're parasailing, and Johnston is using a lot of overhead shots as well as some pretty terrible blue screen. And right away, I'm like, oh, God, these effects. Matt, these effects are not up to par, are they? No, which is... All the more disappointing considering Joe Johnston's background is in visual effects mm-hmm. before he ever started directing movies. And even the movies he directed, you know, some of those effects were kind of cutting edge at the time, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or, or The Rocketeer. Here, they're inconsistent. I think there's some stuff that looks really good, especially when you get to the dinosaurs, but a lot of the blue screen work and some of the, the compositing is is pretty spotty. But I also wonder how many of these pickup shots were were reshoots because of the script getting changed constantly. Correct. Yeah, and in fact, we'll talk about that with the ending, but the ending changed at least six times in the course of making this movie. So yeah, you're right. I mean, how much of this was filmed in three months before the movie was coming out, and how much of this was filmed eight months before the movie was coming out? <laughs> That's a pretty good point there. Adam, as the first-time viewer of this, what were you thinking? You're like, oh boy, what am I in for? Hey, um, one, I respect Joe Johnston, you know, I think he's directed one of the better origin Marvel movies, fan of October Sky, I've never seen Jumanji nor The Rocketeer, uh, though I know those are held in high regard. Uh, these effects look like they're left over from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, though. I mean, that's the quality of this blue screen work, and that's kind of disappointing. Yeah, to the point of reshoots later on, this looks like it's filmed against the blue screen that is on the tour at Universal Studios Hollywood. You know, it's, it's just really doesn't stand out. Uh, and that's disappointing because even the way that it's cut, it, it's cut like it's in frame, like it's part of a really, I guess, necessity, you know, for the way to set up the story here. It's, it's disappointing because, say what you will, but the first two movies, they looked good. You now the effects work, the camera work. And this doesn't start off in something that screams big-budget Jurassic movie. Positively not. And I want to disagree a little bit on Johnston. I, the Rocketeer is actually pretty decent. I hear it's Go fantastic. Ahead. Sorry, it's, I hear it's Rocketeer decent. fantastic. Yeah, it's a decent film. I haven't revisited it in a while. It's probably been at least a decade since I watched it. But I don't think anything of his is higher than a 7 for me. I find him to be kind of a hack. I find him to be somebody they bring in 
to do do a movie, do it on time, do it do it under budget. He's an efficient filmmaker, you know. He he he's pretty much what Brett Brett Ratner was before he became real blacklisted. He's he's just a guy you get to complete the films and not necessarily turn in a real quality work. He's a workhorse. You know, I respect mm-hmm. the hell out of what he did with uh, Captain America: The First Avenger because that's a movie that should not work in any way, and it truly does just because he takes it seriously. So, I respect his work, but this isn't. Not to spoil the end, but this isn't one that I'll say uh, ranks high on his resume. Well, I think October Sky is his best movie, which is ironic considering it's the most stripped-down thing he's done. But one of the commonalities, I think, in his best movies are when he has, even his lesser movies, he always has a very strong affinity for period detail, Uh, whether it's The Rocketeer, whether it's Captain America. And even his Wolfman movie, I think, has some really great production design. And I know that this man doesn't get easy movies because mm-hmm. he took over for Mark Romanek on The Wolfman. This got screwed over. Captain America, you know, I, I think they kind of let him alone. But his Nutcracker movie, I don't know if anyone's even seen that because it was such a bomb. That is one of the most compromised things. Like, it's, it's bordering on, like, the, the Joss Whedon Justice League thing with how much Disney just fucked that movie over. But I think he's a... He's a good director. I like some of his set pieces that he has in his movies, like um, Hidalgo has some really fun stuff in it. So I wouldn't say he's a great director, but I I think he's very good when it comes to, especially World War II between the Rocketeer and Captain America. So they move into some fog and see from above that something has happened to the crew, as in the captain is, is not the wheel here. They let go as the boat crashes and sail away. So we get, I want to say this right now. This is a real B-movie plot. Yes, and that's one of the things I like the most about it. This movie has no air of pretension about it. It's just 90 minutes of people running from dinosaurs. And to be honest, that's kind of what I want from a Jurassic Park sequel. Because I think the the first two movies really struggle with balancing the B-movie characterizations and and plot machinations with the, the bombastic blockbuster filmmaking. Here, I think the fact that it is so stripped down and is straightforward, I would say partially to a fault, doesn't really bother me. Now, Adam, you have the one the one who is, is watching this for the first time. You're seeing this intro. Don't, don't really get into what you thought about the rest of it, but at this intro, are you thinking, oh, boy, we're going to have a missing kid story? Oh, it, as soon as the uh, that parasail goes up, I'm like, oh, man, they're going to use this to fly through the freaking, uh, like, like everything is spelled out. There's not a surprise. I'm like, this thing's going to get cut loose, and it's going to become a paraglider. Well, that's exactly what happens. And I don't know how this boat crew, I mean, I guess we turned into Stephen King's The Fog, because I don't know how this <laughs> boat crew suddenly got killed just by going through the fog, because we don't see fog-based dinosaurs. <laughs> so I have no idea still what happened to that crew. But, yeah, I'm looking at this going, oh, God damn it, this is all going to be about this freaking kid. And this is just another, it's another example of stupid rich white people to kick off a Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> the parents at least get called out on it later. They do, they, yeah. They do, and you know what? I'm going to say, we're going to get into the parents. I think Joe Johnston specifically does something with these parents to make it non-Spielberg. Interesting. And by the way, John Carpenter had the fog. Stephen King had the mist. You'll learn eventually. Uh, well, um, also, <laughs> whatever took the crew are the quietest dinosaurs. They're, they're uh, quiet yeah. as the T Rex yes. at the end of the first Jurassic Park movie. 
<laughs> That's a great point. They're stealthy, aren't they? <laughs> we cut to Dr. Grant playing with the child, showing him more about dinosaurs as Ellie introduces the dinosaur man to her husband, which isn't awkward at all. A real bait and switch. I had kind of remembered Sandy coming back, but I had forgotten until I started watching this. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's right. They brought Alan back. And then this happens, and I'm like, hey, he and Ellie got together, and they're, uh, wait a minute. No, they're not. So there's yeah. like 30 seconds of thinking they're a couple before they, you know, decide to pull that rug right out from under. And I, I was kind of shocked at that. little bait and switch, but it's, it, it's I don't want to say smart, but it's effective. It was a Steven Spielberg decision to have what happens at the end be Ellie, the one who does that. But I think it was a smart choice to not have her be as in charge of that whole organization that comes and helps. We are introduced to her husband here, who she says is an international relations. So they are setting us up here for what we're going to get at the end. But I thought she was going to play a bigger part in the movie, as did Laura Dern. But she came in because Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor helped work on the script. And she really liked uh, being in Citizen Ruth, which is a very good movie if you've ever seen it. Yeah, I thought she was going to be a bigger part, too, when she shows up here. Because I had no idea that she was in this at all. So she shows up, and I'm like, oh, cool. You know, they're getting the whole band back together. Spoiler, they got Laura Dern for all of about three days of filming. <laughs> when can you miss her until the end of, until 90 minutes from now? But it is nice to see her. I'll give it that. Well, speaking of Laura Dern, I will say right now that she thinks there's a reason for that. And the reason she gives is because she thinks after she was on Ellen and she kissed Ellen on that big show that was aired on so many different screens way back in 97 or so, she was blacklisted. And she thinks a lot of that has to do with what she did on that show. And if you check her IMDb, it's a little bare leading up to this one. I don't know if I believe that. I mean, she was a big staple in David Lynch films, as everybody knows. I've always thought she was a real talented actress. She's gotten back in the limelight a little bit in the last few years. But I kind of wish she was in this a little more. I, I really liked seeing her again. You know what? I do believe that, though. That and it's a real shame, but I do believe that. It's amazing. Just this morning, I was watching something on how, like, Robin Williams had to come out and be a buffer to for Nathan Lane when the bird cake came out because people were asking questions about his sexuality and he wasn't out fully. And it it's a shame that Hollywood went that way. But if you look at what Hollywood was, then I completely believe that that's what they did because. A woman had to be bangable to every man that had to go into the auditorium. And if they didn't believe it, they weren't going to cast her. So that's a damn shame. Because as you said, she she has the ability to be a tremendous actress in certain projects. I'm not surprised that she's only here because there would be no reason for her to go with him because she's not involved in research anymore. So outside of just them being together, it wouldn't make sense for her to tag along. I think there is an argument for that, but also... She worked with Joe Johnson on October Sky. She has a big part in that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she was 100% blacklisted because she had five movies get released in 2001. Well, by 2001, yeah, but in the time leading up to it, yeah. she did. I mean, that Allen episode was what, 97? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah, so October Sky was after that because that was, that was 99. So I think there is some there's a through line in that. But I'm just happy they didn't get together because that's what the first movie really teases you with. So I'm kind of glad they didn't go the conventional route, which I, I think everyone assumed would happen. Mm -hmm. And for the record, I do want to see a David Lynch Jurassic Park movie. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. But Adam hit it for me. They really bait and switch you here because we're seeing Alan play with this kid, and we're saying, oh, okay, we saw him get along with kids by the end of the first Jurassic Park movie. So him and Ellie, they started their own family. No, we're learning that Ellie actually has a husband, and this is another kid. I thought it was an interesting bait and switch, but... I- I'm one who's into fairy tales, man. I kind of wanted them to live happily ever after. We're seeing a little conversation here where Alan tells Ellie that he has learned that raptors can vocalize. Hmm, I wonder if this comes into play later. (laughs) Ellie says that he's still the best as he leaves. We then see Alan giving a presentation on dinosaurs, and no one ends up having any questions on Jurassic Park, do they? (laughs) Or the incident in San Diego. And Alan says that, that... what John Hammond did was engineer theme park monsters, not dinosaurs themselves, and that no force on Earth or in heaven could get him back on that island. <laughs> we have to see this in order to learn that he is not going to be coaxed into this easily. Adam, what do you think when you saw this presentation? It's funny because I think this is a scene that Friends rips off when uh, Ross is doing a presentation of paleontology. So that's nice. what it made me think of. But I also, like he says the line, and I'm like, Okay, that means the next scene is going to be exactly whatever gets him to go back to the island. When I read, you know, the trivia, the making of, and the early thought that Alan would be on an island doing that work, I like that idea actually quite a bit. Just because I think you could find a way for him to be like, this opportunity will never exist again in all of mankind. I could do it. So I like that thought. That all we do is go down the reasoning that he goes back to the island is the exact same reasoning that we get in the first Jurassic Park. Is so hollow and lazy <laughs> to me. Well, it's also, I think it's, it has to confirm that Hammond didn't fund his research as he promised. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Uh, well, he so, only said three years, and based on the age of that kid, it seems like yeah. it's seven. That's fair. But still, you think that would be enough money to last him a long time? And he might have, oh, yeah. for all intents and purposes, bribed him with life endangerment and threatened to sue him for every dollar he had. So, yeah, uh, no kidding. <laughs> This is the, the the one thing that actually makes sense is that he's things oh, are yeah yeah things aren't going so well. We then meet Michael Jeter's character of Udesky, and we are seeing some weapons get tested. This is a scene I feel was kind of put here just to hit a ninety minute quota because it means absolutely nothing to the for the rest of the picture. <laughs> oh, I think this is actually a smart dig on Johnston's part because. They are setting you up to think that these guys are such badasses. Like, this is basically like the opening of Predator. <laughs> uh, predator or aliens. It's exactly that, and they, he subverts it by, these are the only people who get killed in this movie. Uh, when, <laughs> when, when they get to that island. So I, I, I like this a lot. That, that, that's my read on it. I, I, I love that they, they spray paint the, the plane, put, like, dinosaur teeth on it. Yeah, it's, again, it at least... You know, for all the things that are going to be said, and there's going to be a but, like, it subverts what you think is going to happen, you know, and in that way, makes you, you know, kind of cock your head a little bit sideways, and it's a nice little swerve, you know, as Matt said, that these the people that are going to die are the ones that act like they're, you know, the most ready to go and kill some dinos, and nope, they're fodder. We cut to Grant as he meets up with Billy, who shows him the chamber of the Velociraptor. Uh... Now, this character of Billy, now, this, this, this character is somebody who I think Johnston brought in and the writers. They, they brought somebody in who could do most of the action in the film because Sam Neill's no spring chicken. I thought this character was okay. He kind of takes a little bit of a dark turn, as we'll talk about when we get into the film. But what do you guys think about Billy? Adam, you groan first, so you go. 
<laughs> Sorry, did I groan already? Oops. From the moment Billy's introduced, I have a feeling he's going to have some nefarious mean, and he does but doesn't. I'm amazed that they basically pull out a 3D printer here at the beginning of the movie. I was like, oh, shit, they got a 3D printer. Yeah. But blowing into some 3D-printed Velociraptor conch shell, that's not how vocalizations work. <laughs> you don't blow into a 3D-printed skull to learn how something makes noises. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But I just, I don't know, something about this kid just bugs me enough that I, I never like him. And I don't know if I'm ever supposed to, but I, just, I don't like the guy. That's because you saw him in Face Off. Yeah, he was in Face Off. Mm. <laughs> Made a huge impression on Adam. Matt, what about you? For as bullshit of a, of a scientific thing as that is, the whole vocalization, I like that this movie's not preoccupied with techno science or any of that other nonsense that sometimes dragged both the book and parts of the first movie down. But they have a 3D printer and claim they're still hurting for money. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit absurd. <laughs> In 2000, where that would have been a $100,000 machine. Yeah. We meet William H. Macy's character of Paul Kirby, who stops by and asks if Grant could have dinner with him and his wife. We cut to Grant, Billy, and Kirby, and his wife Amanda, and Paul asks Alan to be their guide to a honeymoon visit to La Sorna. And when Grant refuses, Paul says he can write all kinds of numbers on a check. All right, so here we are. We're meeting our other two people that we're going to be spending the rest of this movie with. Paul Kirby, played by William H. Macy, and Amanda Kirby, played by Tia Leone. I like William H. Macy a lot. He is fantastic, especially around this time. He always played a lot of the characters. He ends up being here, where he's just kind of a loser. And I love the way that they build him up to be someone who is not that way, but he ends up running a hardware store, we'll learn later. Taya Leone, she was in a great movie called Flirting with Disaster. She's kind of playing that same character here. She's always been a good presence. Matt, you and I, we reviewed her when we did Bad Boys. And she does some pretty good stuff here. She kind of reminds me of Willie Scott a little bit, except in a way where she's not as annoying as Willie Scott, because she gets the crew in a lot of trouble in certain instances and they kind of have to pull their way out because of her but i don't know i like these two people i like that we're spending our time with them matt what do you feel about these two so she is playing this at the b movie level like she is a glorified scream queen in mm-hmm. this movie although she she does something as soon as they get to that island where i'm like she doesn't have much in the way of brain cells i guess she left them in the divorce settlement <laughs> but, but 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 this is this is fine as far as a setup because William H. Macy, like, this is the same bar he paid Peter Stormare and Steve Buscemi at to go kidnap his wife in Fargo. Yeah. I think that was fully intentional, by the way, to set it in a, in a bar much like that. I think they're both they're both fine, but it's a franchise that's not, that should not be preoccupied with characterization. So keeping it this straightforward, I fully support. Because much like the second movie, they don't waste a lot of time getting to this island. And they got less real estate than that, that second movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the math point, it's amazing kind of how brisk this starts flowing. It, You know, William H. Macy, damn good actor, like amazing actor. This isn't the type of thing, well, you know, he might do this type of thing nowadays. He likes to have fun. Hey, Leone, she is Willie Scott in this film. She just, her octave doesn't go quite as high mm-hmm. shrieking throughout this film. But it's amazing that they get two actors that I really enjoy and put them in this B-movie. They're a better presence because of who they are, but they can't really elevate the material they're being asked to do. But there are two presents that I like seeing on screen. You know, they are, you know, dang good actors. I enjoy seeing them. 
even if I don't enjoy what they're being asked to do. Adam makes a point, and I was going to bring this up later, but I think I like these characters a lot, but I think it's because I like the actors and not necessarily the characters. Because Mm -hmm. as much as Payne was brought in to bring characterizations to these people, and he says that a lot of his writing's not here, but I'm not seeing any of that here. And and to Matt's point, you know, these two are not here for us to really care about them as much as we want to see them get chased. And so we were introducing this this little bit of a storyline. The storyline is going to get expanded upon, and we're going to get a little bit of a swerve here in a bit. But right now, it's like, okay, these are, again, two rich people who we, th- we think they're two rich people, and they are going to take him to the island, and he's just going to tour him around. Sure, okay. Just like last movie, where Malcolm was brought in to take pictures. I enjoy these characters for what they are. Yeah, and for what it is, you've got to find a reason to get to the island. Absolutely. You know, and in the grand scheme of things, it may be the hardest, but it may be the simplest thing of, you know, when breaking the story is how quick and how are we just going to get them to this island? Because that's all the that's all the movie going audience is going to care about. So the other people on the flight, they say they knew the Kirby's through their church. My note, as soon as I see that we're on plane, and I got it written down here. Boy, I bet this plane crashes in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Before well, we get there. They, 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 well, for the record, they land in about two minutes. They don't crash for another ten. Yeah, right. True. Very true. <laughs> but before that, Alan falls asleep. And <laughs> now, Adam, you teased this last week, and here we get it. Alan dreams of a raptor calling his name and waking him up. Now, Stan Winston, he used to call this his Muppet moment, where they really made this to look like one of those raptors from the first film. But a talking dinosaur? <laughs> Are you out of your mind? Yeah, and I know it. Matt. I know. I know Matt's about to defend it. So go ahead, Matt. I just did. Jim Henson did it for years on that show uh, on the ABC Back show. Mama. Yeah, Back exactly. Mama. This movie, they throw up their hands and said, "Fuck it, let's have fun." There's no underlying message about PETA and animal cruelty. It's just. We're going to make something stupid. And you know what? There comes a point in your life where sometimes you, you, you want to eat McDonald's, and that's kind of what this movie is. I don't know, man. We're going chicken filet here. Adam, <laughs> Adam uh, you knew this was coming. What did you think when it finally showed up? You know what? The only thing I heard that Daniel was talking in this movie, for it to be a dream after we had that stupid vocalization thing, it did not overly upset me because when I realized it happened, I realized that was probably all going to be it. I thought literally we were going to get, by the end of this, like, dinos kind of doing a <laughs> freaking kind of thing going on. So that it was just this, after him being conked in the freaking head, I went past it pretty quick. So it, it was nowhere near the debacle that I was prepared for the last 20 years to experience. Mm. This is not that creature in Alien Resurrection saying, Mama, I don't think it's that. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Speaking of Lynch. So Alan wakes up and they land in restricted airspace as that Jurassic Park theme plays. They look outside and see dinosaurs scatter as Alan says, my God, I'd forgotten how beautiful they are. And I love this part so much because right, what Alan's doing right now is exactly what he was told to do. He's, he's giving all the dinosaurs their names out the windows and he's showing them off. But nobody on the plane gives a shit. <laughs> They're just looking away. So this should have been a sign that, Alan, you were kind of brought on, hooked, line, and sinkered. <laughs> yeah, and as I'm waiting to figure out what the issue is. Um, looking at the people who with, who are with them, I think that this family is working with someone to bring back 
carcasses or something with engine where they're there to get, you know, DNA samples, something like that. I wasn't expecting exactly where it went. But i got to say, uh, you might as well lead this off with, you know, the main character of this movie being the theme. And this theme might as well come from a Las Vegas brothel because they prostitute John Williams' music from beginning to end in this film. I think that main swell has already been heard ten times before we get to the frickin' island. Oh, my God. But you know what? As somebody who hated last week's score, I got to say, it was kind of nice to hear these particular themes. And these are themes that I didn't even like too much the first time I watched it. But after last week's debacle, and they didn't bring Williams back. I mean, they brought in a guy, Don Davis, who has worked with John Carpenter in the past, and he'll, he, and I think he worked on the Matrix score as well. You know, they, they brought him yeah, here, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that all John Johnston said, said was, okay, we have permission, let's just ape Williams' score as much as we can. Oh, John Williams isn't here, and the guy that they got, the only thing he can do is hit playback on like, that's all this score is. Oof. John Williams had more important things to do at this time, like Harry Potter. And AI. Good. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, these dinos, it, we have really fallen from that sense of wonder that we got, in the, even in the second film. Like, not only is the, the magic gone, they do not look good. I can't believe that it's been 10 years. God, has it been 10 years since the first one? Yeah, I guess it has been. Well, eight years uh, at this eight point. Eight years. Yeah. Eight years. But the quality is really gone down for how these dinos look to me and i'm disappointed in that i think the quality control has gone down because i think spielberg's one of those directors where you know a lot like james cameron and people like that and even i'll even put michael bay in with this in that they don't all those guys i just mentioned don't settle they are going to get the best special effects people possible they're going to get the best special effects and they're going to make sure that they're done right I have a friend who worked with Michael Bay on three different pictures, and he said he would pull up in his Ferrari when he was doing work on Armageddon, and he would go table to table and say every little detail that needed to be improved before it goes on screen, and they were not going to leave that shop until it was done. I don't think Joe Johnston's doing that here. I think as somebody who worked in special effects himself, I think he just kind of gave them the blueprints and said, okay, just do this, and I think the studio is kind of on him because The Lost World... It didn't lose money by any means, but it wasn't exactly one that was praised for its effects too much. I just don't think that they kind of brought their A game here. I don't think Universal cared all that much. Yeah, This was something that we have a date, just make sure the movie's done by this time. I mean, if they really cared, they would, they would not have allowed all that constant script doctoring without some kind of punt on the release date. Yeah, good point. Well, that, that's it. Like, yeah, I don't think it was high on their priority list, and this guy might as well be working for Disney in the current time frame with the way some of this is done. So Alan keeps talking about the dinosaurs through the window as they get ready to land, and then Alan gets knocked out. <laughs> a bit extreme. It's not like he was going to fight back. I know, right? <laughs> Alan gets out and sees that Paul and his wife are calling out the name of Eric. They hear something howl in the wilderness as they get ready to take off again. They're seeing that Cooper is on the runway as he gets eaten and blood splatters across the windshield, and they crash. And I love the theory that the reason why they are stalked by the Spinosaurus the entire film is because this plane hit it, and it's pissed. So. <laughs> it's, like John, it's like Jaws 2. Yeah. But 
But this is the kind of stuff you're talking about, right, Matt? This kind of B-movie stuff, this kind of – I mean, we keep saying that, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick of saying it. But it's true where there's blood on this windshield, and boom, they're crashing, and here we go. Yeah, and we got a, you know, we got a new big bad dinosaur, which it sounds bigger. I'm like, really? That there's factual evidence to support that argument. I like that they're throwing you right in. They instantly off one of the one of the guards. That's a good way to introduce your, you know, your new big bad dinosaur. One of the other crew members gets eaten as the rest of the plane falls and rolls on the ground. There is nothing subtle about this sequel. I mean, here we are. We're we're not doing much introduction. Boom. We're right in the thick of it, aren't we? We are. We're right there. This dino, it's funny. I had heard about the, I think they call it the Spinosaurus, Uh and I'd only heard about it from Jurassic World. But you know what really made me mad about this? This is a Dimetrodon, or uh, yeah, Dimetrodon, which is like, it's a dinosaur with that giant sail on its back that actually predated dinosaurs. So... It, they literally took something and just kind of like, well, I guess in classic Jurassic Park fashion, fashion we just made it bigger. This thing is weird looking, man. <laughs> yeah. But to, I guess I guess in the way of this film, like this is the kind of toy as a dino that I would have been into as a kid. Or if I would have made something with clay or silly putt, you know, it would have been this. So it, it goes, but I, I, I don't know. Like the look of this thing, it feels like a sci-fi TV. It sounds like a sci-fi TV movie. Even the the noise that this thing makes is just B-level. So you either go with it or you don't. I, I'm having a hard time at this point, though. Yeah, I'm not going to argue about scientific accuracy in a movie that relies on a satellite phone as a plot. <laughs> <laughs> so this dino is just loving chomping on the rest of this plane as they all get out. They find a dead dino body as they look up, and there's the T-Rex of the film. Rexy. Rexy, although here's Rexy with blood hanging out of his mouth. We think he's going to be terrorizing like he was in the last two movies. Nope, he ends up getting in a fight and getting killed. That didn't take long. But I I appreciate that this is a movie that, for the most part, people rely on base survival instincts, where even though he tells them not to move, they run. Yeah. That is is the natural reaction, no matter how rational someone tries to be. I was also impressed that we got introduced to this new dinosaur, and... Freaking like literally three minutes later, we're just getting a full blown, you know, Godzilla v Kong type fight here between the two main dinos. Yep, and Joe Johnson has did say he was like, "Look, we didn't want to do the T Rex again. We saw that for two straight movies. We're going to do something that's even bigger and badder." And you know, and that's the thought of escalation in every move in every sequel. You know, we got to go bigger. We got to go better. So I think it was a wise wise choice to kill this T Rex off early and say, "You know what? This isn't going to be your bad guy." I mean, yeah, if you've seen the trailers and everything, and you see the scene of the quote unquote fin going through the water, you know it's not going to be this T Rex this entire movie. But I like I like the fact we get him here and he's taken out pretty quick. I also like that this is a movie to where, unlike the second one, I do feel like there's always a constant sense of danger. You know, they're on an island, but they don't have, like, a mercenary team with them because two of the three just got off. They've already survived a plane crash, uh, which I, I like that set piece a lot. Uh, Sam Neill has some great line readings in this movie where he's like, we didn't land yet. the kirby's then give the real reason why they're here which is to find their son and that they've actually been divorced for over a year and alan says that he has never actually been on this island and chances are they won't get off this island alive i like this idea and this point that they think that they're getting him because of his familiarity with the island and even an audience might have forgotten hey there's two islands this is site b this is you know isla 
Sorna, not Isla Dorna. I don't know. La Isla Bonita. <laughs> I think that's a smart and fun little way to be like, hey, two islands, and these people are too stupid to realize that. I also love where Billy's like, yeah, that check you wrote us is bullshit, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Kirbys have an uncomfortable moment as they're changing, and Amanda compliments him on the weight that he's recently lost. And, you know, I thought they were going to go here where we're going to see this couple kind of get reacquainted, get back together. And that's going to be a complaint I have about this movie. There is zero heart here. I barely know these people, but yet I kind of want them to get together because I like the actors. No, they're not going to go here. In fact, I don't even think they even see each other again after this adventure is over. Now, Matt, you're going to probably say you like that because you didn't want to linger on them, correct? No, and I also didn't want a repeat of the dynamic of the first movie. Alan and Ellie weren't apart and got back together. They were together that entire film. I mean, they are bringing back the broken family, but this whole thing is like, well, we're not going to have these people get back together. I thought that was weird. Adam, were you looking for them to get back together? I feel like they do get back together throughout the course of this film. You know, I think little by little, we do find them kind of like rekindling that marriage and building that family back together. And I think that's something that they try to do to separate this from a standard. If if Spielberg directed this, they would have started married and been divorced by the end of this film. I think instead we're getting a divorced couple. At the end of it, I feel like they are back together. You know, that does just kind of how I take between them. But I like that they are little things about a couple that kind of refining things that they may have took for granted and, oh, well, you did this. Oh, you do that. So, yeah, I, I, it's a change of pace. And as much as so much of this is schlocky-type writing, maybe it's just because the actors are good in the shitty lines that are put into their mouth, but I like seeing these two together. Now, to be fair, I, I think the argument, well, the characters aren't great. I like the actors. You could apply that to the previous two movies, too. Like, I don't think that's yeah. Yeah, that huge yeah, yeah. leap for this franchise. Paul talks about when he climbed K2, and he then gives up that there's no such thing as Kirby Enterprises. It's actually a hardware store. And as Matt said, the check probably isn't good. You think they would have ca- he would have cashed it before getting on the plane? Yeah, right? The Kirbys fight some more, as Michael Jeter says. If they split up, he wants to go with Alan and Billy. <laughs> Michael Jeter's great in this movie. There's not enough of him. Oh, yeah. He kind of steals the show in the scenes that we were given. I'm, I get sad when his fate is revealed, but he's... And I kept trying to be like, where, where have I seen him from? Where have I seen him from? I've seen him in a lot of things. And casting-wise, they did a pretty damn good, impressive job with this film. And, yeah, he injects some nice moments of levity. They find Amanda's camera, and they watch some clips of what happened, and Paul says that he knows that Eric's alive. They find a body in a tree, and as as Amanda screams uncontrollably, and then Amanda tells Paul that he's worried that Eric's out there all by himself. So here's Amanda screaming again. Which, which to be fair... We're not landing. Yeah, yeah, but at at least she ran into a mangled corpse. Yeah, of her her husband. Yeah. As opposed to just bugs. Yeah, and I feel like this is probably Johnston paying tribute either to Raiders of the Lost Ark or Poltergeist because you see these kind of corpses a lot in these Spielberg films. Oh, if they did this nowadays, she would be the one in charge. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right. Yeah, so they, they would have made mean, her, she'd be Ellen Ripley. Yeah, wait, wait till yeah, the next exactly. one. exactly. So as much as she's not fully annoyed, the only reason she's not detestable is because it's Tia Leone who can at least bring a better presence to it. Grant and Billy, they find a bunch of raptor eggs, and Billy is spotted around the nests. They find some soda and candy machines, and they find (laughs) machines where the dinosaurs are made, and they're running into half-made dinos. As one wakes up, and they get chased. 
Okay, for a movie that is predominantly focused on action, I think that's a genuinely scary thing when it blinks at her. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a good and moment. I was, I was waiting for it. This movie had to do the damage, undo the damage that the second movie did to Velociraptors. Considering the second one, they get beat by gymnastic-equipped teenagers. <laughs> Here, I like that they're actually scary again, kind of like going back to the first one. They've some intellect, although I don't like the Roadrunner feathers they gave them. Yeah, that was weird. Mm-hmm. But I like to see everything in here when we go to this, you know, we go to the place where they were being manufactured, grown, the lab. I like it. just seeing the lab again, going there. I think it's a good inclusion and, you know, something you could have easily forgotten from the second one. So I think going in here is a smart move. As much as it was reminding me of Alien Resurrection, I like the scene inside the lab. Oh, I can't wait to get to the Alien series. The raptor gets caged and then calls for help, which took Alan completely off guard. The group it had me rolling my freaking eye. <laughs> did it. Oh, well, we I, saw this yeah. before, though. We saw this in the first one. They did this. We did see this in the first one. And instead, these things now have multiple different sounds that they make. And I know it was set up in the beginning. I understand it was set up with that 3D-printed freaking velociconch yeah. but every time that they start talking to each other this way yeah, yeah. well th- this movie is not, not subtle about foreshadowing between the velociconch no. his magic backpack I- I'm convinced he got that off door of the explorer with how much of a plot device that fucking thing is <laughs> oh, that might as well be the backpack from Tenet as much as that comes back into play I don't think there's any four about this foreshadowing. I think all of it's shadowed because everything's there in front of you. There's no subtlety. And you know what? If you go with it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Are you going with it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It, you know, part of it depends on who's doing it. I really quickly hate Billy, but I like everybody else around until we get somebody coming back in in just a few minutes. All right. So the group heads to the herd and run toward the trees. Udesky ends up getting trapped, and dumbass Amanda goes toward him And when it's found that the raptors actually set up a trap. So these raptors are pretty smart. Here's the thing about this movie, though. As unsubtle as it is, it has the problem of explaining every single thing that happens in it like we're idiots. Like, when this trap is set, we have Alan tell us, oh, they set a trap. Everything is explained <laughs> to us as we're going. Matt, you didn't have a problem with that? Well, Return of the Jedi did the same thing. I expected Admiral Akbar to come out of a bush. <laughs> Damn it, you took my notes. <laughs> this movie has its training wheels equipped for the full 90 minutes. But I also don't feel like it ever insults my intelligence in the way that like some Michael Bay movies do. See, I think the difference is, like, if I saw this in theaters, I would have been, I say, what did we say this was, 2001? So I would have been 22. Matt would have been 11 or 12. So depending on who's going to see it, depending on who's going to see it you need that stuff kind of spelled out because as a parent who would have seen the first one in theaters as a teenager they're now taking their kids to see it you know we've talked about this and you get a couple films into a franchise you got to start spelling stuff out for the next generation coming along the raptors surround them as a set of gas grenades are thrown and alan is is hauled out (laughs) (laughs) jesus fuck What's wrong with this? What? <laughs> what? We suddenly get freaking smoke grenades getting tossed in. It doesn't take long for Alan to put together that this kid is Eric, and he tells him that his parents are here looking for him, and Eric responds, together? So here's Eric. Adam, I'm assuming this is the character you despise, correct? 
you think? <laughs> oh my god, I was forced to watch The Lord of the Flies in school, and you know what? I like that book and movie. This kid and what this kid does and how he, there is no explanation for this survivalist kid living for two months on this freaking island full of dinosaurs, but yet is stupid enough to blow his entire wad by throwing like seven freaking smoke grenades at the freaking raptors. Uh, we're out of smoke grenades now. Like, I, do, I hate, 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 hate this kid. Wow, that's something I usually associated with me. I, so I'm, I like yeah, that you're I on this end. Like, I hate this kid like you generally hate the kids in this fucking movie. <laughs> wow. Matt, do you have a strong feeling about this one? Yeah, I'm the opposite. This is the, this is the only kid in these three movies that I really like. Because he doesn't, he's not annoying or overly precocious. It's, it's absurd that he survived, okay? But the, maybe he's a Boy Scout. I'll give him that leniency. Having said that, he also says, I used the last of the gas, gas grenades. We also don't know how many he was stocked with because he's been living in, like, a basically an in-gen fallout shelter that has to be pretty well equipped. The one thing I don't understand, it's funny, the T-Rex P, how exactly did he get that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have a note about that as well. But this scene has my favorite line in the movie where he's like, did you read Malcolm's book? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like, yep, it was, it was all chaos. I don't understand that. <laughs> and it seemed kind of preachy. It makes me laugh. <laughs> and then Alan's <laughs> just like, yeah, that's something we have in common. Yeah, I'm with Matt here. And surprisingly, because I said last week I remembered a kid in this being annoying, and this was the one I was talking about. He didn't grade on me as much as I was expecting him to. The fact that he's here surviving, I think is going. it was going to be the Alan storyline that I mentioned earlier. That Alan was the one who's going to be survived here, and Alan was the one who was going to be found. And the fact that it's this kid, yeah, it is so out there that he would be living on these candy machine candy bars and baked beans this entire time. But I did not find him nearly as annoying as I thought I would. In fact, I'm like I'm like Matt. I, I kind of found him to be pretty enjoyable. You know the thing about dinos? They mostly come at night. Mostly. <laughs> the Kirbys talk more about Eric's survival instincts and how Paul would have kept him safe because of the way he drives five miles per hour under the speed limit. Meanwhile, Alan and Eric, they find a boat that someone left behind. They head out, and Eric hears Paul's satellite phone. As he runs to find it, the Kirbys hear him calling for them, and he finds them through a barbed wire cage, of course. Oh, this satellite phone. What a plot point, huh, Adam? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, it... Yeah, I mean, sure, it, it, it is Chekhov's satellite phone, but this thing this thing comes back into play more than a pinball machine when you get match at the end. I mean, this thing keeps coming back and keeps coming back. The funny thing is, like, the satellite phone, it mattered in the second one. Yeah. You know, Malcolm was talking about how he couldn't get signal and stuff like that, so that they actually brought it back. Almost to the point, though, that it's a joke. So if you just roll your eyes and laugh, it could be just one of those idiosyncrasies that just make this that much more silly of a B-movie. Well, this satellite phone, it's going to turn into kind of a callback to the first film, but I really do like how it's revealed <laughs> that this thing is ringing and nobody can find it, and we find it <laughs> actually coming from the Spinosaurus itself. I thought that was a pretty awesome reveal. Well, yeah, because the moment of realization where they're like, I gave it to the guy before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And also, like, they picked the most obnoxious ringtone. Oh, I know. Um, yes. <laughs> which makes you laugh. I also love how they treat the Spinosaurus in this movie like Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just shows so, up. Yeah, it, it, from the remake where it's got teleporting powers. It's amazing, though, because being that this is the first time I've seen this, I'm just looking at this going, I can't believe 
freaking Nolan steals the Spinosaurus phone trick for freaking the Dark Knight. <laughs> oh, Jesus. They head for safety, and Billy asks for the bag back due to the fact that it's not safe. Alan opens it and sees that Billy has actually stolen raptor eggs because he thought that they'd be worth a fortune, and he'd done it with the best of intentions, to which Alan says some of the worst things in history were done with the best intentions. Alan says the raptors know they have the eggs, so they will come hunting for them. Oh, boy. So Billy ends up taking these eggs. How is he going to get the money from this? Who's he going to turn them into? Mm-hmm. This seems like maybe in that he was maybe like a plant the whole time, or maybe that he just had you know it. This would have been if you learned that maybe Engine reached out to him when he learned when they learned they were going to the island. Just something. It's not fully fleshed out, but it's also like they didn't want him to fully be a villain. But I had no surprise that he was going to turn. I feel like the whole him being an Ingen mole was something that likely was in a previous draft but got lost in translation. It's fine because it keeps the plot moving along and, again, adds to that imposing sense that raptors can just burst through a door anytime because now they have impetus to chase after them on a giant island. Yeah. So do you like the fact that he's taking these eggs or do you just kind of think of it as more manufactured tension? Oh, yeah, because I've seen aliens. (laughs) (laughs) They head on a bridge in the fog as part of it falls off. This is a good scene. I like the suspense of them not knowing what's ahead. And these, I know they're pterodons, but I'm going to call them pterodactyls just because as a kid, that's what I called them. They're pretty scary looking. People, me included, were really anxious to see these in action. And for the most part, the scene really comes through. And Matt, this was a scene directly from that first book, correct? This was from the original Jurassic Park, and they they used it here. This is a great set piece. How they incorporate the birdcage and the fog to make the audience confused as far as what's actually happening, but you can still tell. It's pretty cool. Like, this is a this is a standout part of the trilogy. Like, this and a scene later on, I think, do a good job of selling dinosaur action in a 90-minute box. Adam, as the first-time viewer of this, what did you think of this? I thought it was kind of cool. I like the, you know, the change of, you know, you think you're going to get one thing, then, you, you know, you think it's something else. I think that permeates this room throughout, but I dig it. I like it. I think that this birdcage device is you next part of the franchise when we get to world so i i dig it i think it looks cool i think it's different but i do think you also need a set piece that you could do something with and they do that with what they created what they built here i like the shakiness of the bridge and i like how alan realizes it's a bird cage that's all that's all really nicely done but these things they end up taking eric and he gets dropped off in a nest of them could you imagine you're being <laughs> taken away by these things you get dropped off and you've looked and it's like oh god it's a bunch of these babies <laughs> Uh, that's how many were thinking of that Bugs Bunny cartoon with, nope, not one of us, nope. <laughs> <laughs> not until now. Eric fights them off as Billy jumps down to help. Eric hops on as Billy parachutes down. And so we're thinking that oh. Billy is going to sacrifice himself here. But not, at one point did I ever think he was going to die. Adam, you groaned again. That's like oh, six yes, groans this one podcast. This, so go ahead. Check unleash. off Paris. This Chekhov's parasail has come back four times now. This is the same freaking parasail that was at the beginning of the film, but somehow it's perfectly stuffed into a base jumping backpack. Sorry, this one was just, I'm just like, oh, you, are you fucking kidding me? Wow. And I want Billy gone at this point. I was hoping partway through the pterodactyls would just swoop in, eat him one false swoop, and he'd be out of this. Wow, Matt. What about you? I didn't realize there was a sewing kit in that plane. So. 
as to what they were like, all right, give me a break. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's also implausible that he survived this and they found his body. They all land in the water. And <laughs> I remember this being brought up the last time I did this series, but I want to bring it up again. There is a really bizarre close-up of a pterodon just kind of looking at the camera as all this mm-hmm. chaos is going on. <laughs> it was so Breaking silly. the fourth wall. Yes. Yeah. Might as well wink and it hit both of us watching. Exactly. Alan stops to tell Eric that the last thing he ever told Billy was, you are worse than the people who built this place. So now Alan's feeling a lot really guilty, and he's actually really bonding with this kid that he, he was sent to find, too. Eric and Grant, they still find time to share in some wonder as they ride by a bunch of Brachiosauruses. And again, Adam, you brought up that they're going to bring the score back time and time again. But this is part of what made us fall in love with that first movie. And if you're going to remind us of that first movie, this is the way to do it. You bring back the wonder. And I do like the fact that after all of this, they're riding on this boat and they look and Eric's the one who sees them. And of course, the kid's going to be the one who sees them first and he points them out. And Alan, no matter what he's gone through with these dinosaurs, he's never, ever stopped short of saying how wondrous these things are. And I, and I like this scene quite a bit. You know what? I I like it for that moment. I like that we keep seeing Alan and amazed by dinosaurs because I think that's important, especially with who he is. My issue with the score that it should be a sense of wonder and reveal. And the one of the first times they use it is the reveal of the freaking paraglider at the beginning of this film. It opens up and it's like na na. So it's just prostituted so much that the score doesn't matter. But yeah, the reveal of Alan still loving dinosaurs and loving what he's doing, I think, is pretty great. Yeah, because every time you use that, you go back to that same well, eventually it's going to run dry and the music will will stop having impact. But I like that it's also still wandering dinosaurs, and this is the first time they've seen like herbivores since they landed. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we're once again hearing the phone come from, this time, some big piles of shit as an Allosaurus comes to check things out. I kind of feel like they had this Allosaurus just there in the shop, and they couldn't really think of anything to do with it. It doesn't really do anything besides this one little scene of looking at them. It's a scary-looking fucker, and I remember reading about these when I was heavy into dinosaurs in grade school, and this is what I thought of was them with these horns, and yeah, I I like this dinosaur. I just wish it was used more. But I think that kind of happens throughout. I think there was a lot of stuff planned that got changed, moved around, you know, script doctored and cut up. Um, Cool design. The poop, it's... It's a funny callback that goes on just a little too long and gets a little too gross for me, but I, I understand what it's there for. But that, yeah, that dino, it's, it's one more thing that's just feels a little out of place because of how this thing is Frankenstein together. You watch this scene, no force on earth or heaven would get me to put that phone next to my ear. <laughs> that was my part of like, first thing he does is put it next to his fucking <laughs> but that might have to do with the fact that there's a massive rainstorm. And then, as you guys mentioned, Alan picks up the phone and calls Ellie's house and gets Charlie, who's kind of distracted by Barney as the phone falls and the dinosaurs once again attack. This little five-year-old kid is less annoying than Billy and that freaking Lord of the Flies kid. (laughs) Make this kid the the kid star of the film. Oh, jeez. I I do. I love that he's watching Barney. And also, this is basically uh, shut down all the doors at the detention level when they're stuck in that trash Mm -hmm. compactor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with with Matt. Even though by 2001, I think Barney was kind of out. But you have to do it just because, you know, it's a dinosaur and we're being surrounded by them. Yeah. Yeah, the only other option would have been to put on like the actual dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. Show. Now, as much as this scene was used in trailers, I do like this little Spielberg homage as the dinosaur approaches with the spikes sticking out of the water. Just a nice shot done there. The cell phone might as well have had the Jaws ringtone. 
<laughs> because it's not just that they also have a part where one of them gets in the like the shark cage yeah 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 this is it is an homage to spielberg it's a cute little thumbs up in practicality that I, i'm surprised that this same dinosaur didn't sprout wings so that it could be land sea and air <laughs> but you don't have a land-based dinosaur that's gonna swim if you know Jaws, if you know Spielberg, which is funny because we get a scene where Alan should have just said, smile, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does that. This is Jaws for the next 10 minutes. Mm. Ellie hits redial and the race, race is on to find the phone and they're headed underwater just before Ellie can find out what's going on. This is another really good scene, but this phone through line is bothersome. (laughs) Everything has to do with this goddamn phone. Meanwhile, remember Amanda and Paul? Amanda is about to get eaten as Paul climbs on this structure. Alan finds a flame gun underwater. The gun is fired, and they think that Paul is dead, but he emerges saying that he's not going anywhere. And I like this little bit of an arc. I mentioned that there's not much character work here, but the fact that this dude was kind of looked at as this loser who couldn't really do anything right, he's the one who's going to get up and distract the dinosaur enough for Ellie and Alan to kind of not kill it, but at least get it off their backs. I kind of like this little scene with William H. Macy. As somebody who hopes that he could be a husband that is interesting enough that his wife sticks around long-term. Yes, I am totally down with this. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. Especially when it's, you know, when your wife is just that much out of your league. So, yes, I get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's it's cool. It's a nice moment. It's Is it silly? Absolutely. But I like it, especially when it's William H. Macy, of all people. You know, who's not exactly the tough guy, but he's sauntering like Arnold coming out of freaking flaming water. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's at the ending of Predator when he comes out of the mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this whole raft part is awesome and kind of like a it's like a funny wink and a nod to the Universal ride. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul says he misses fishing as Amanda looks at him like she just wants to bang him silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they... hide your eyes, kid. I'm going to get down. They head towards the ocean as they are once again surrounded. Amanda gets the eggs as Alan blows the thing he had earlier to distract them, this conch. Adam, this was your favorite part, right? Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) And like a clear sunny day with nothing to see out over the ocean, you see this from a million miles away. And when he reaches in to pull out this fucking velociconch, god damn it. <laughs> but it, I mean, at this point, it's earned. It, thank God Billy didn't pull it out since he's the one that printed it. Like, I'll give Alan a lot of leeway because I like Sam Neill, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, this is so stupid. <laughs> like, like, this is the one thing I, I can't defend. The Raptors come to take the eggs as the Navy and Marine reinforcements arrive, and Alan just says, God bless you, Ellie. What the fuck? You know what, though? They should have come in with the Team America music. <laughs> Might as well. Well, the fact that they're here and we have all these dinosaurs roaming around, you think they would take out the pterodons, which end up flying next to the plane later. But I don't know. I kind of liked it because, again, it was set up earlier. You know, Ellie was just like, well, my husband, he does work for national defense. Well, this is what you get with that. And I do like the fact that it's not just the Navy. It's the Navy and the Marines showing up. Space Marines show up. This thing is so freaking <laughs> And just... And just like the dinosaurs, this helicopter is in stealth mode because you don't hear it until it's flying overhead. You don't hear the ships, (laughs) the aircraft carriers, the lane. I mean, you know what? Steven Spielberg might as well have rethemed the storming of Normandy that he does in Spring Private Ryan the way so many of these fucking troops show up. It's over. Though, I guess if you're going to go over the top, 
at this point, you just go, fuck it, land them all, have fun. Right. But it's it's it, it's utterly ridiculous, but this movie has been, so just go. It's the same manufacturer that made the one in Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yep. Well, you find out that Billy's actually alive. Somehow. Somehow. Although, they, like I said, that fall into the water. Billy should, returns. That fall in the water shouldn't have killed him, but at the same time, he's all bandaged up. No. But the island full of dinosaurs should have. Yes. Alan gives him some positive reinforcement as the helicopter is surrounded by, again, they're called pterodons, but I'm going to call them pterodactyls because that's what I know them as. And Alan says it's a whole new world for them. I love the fact that Alan's looking out the window and seeing these things and not saying, holy shit, we need to get those. Oh, no. He's just like, nah, there they go. And I get it. This is kind of a callback to that first film when he looks out the window and it's actually pelicans flying out there. But I don't know, man. This was this took it a little far, didn't it, Matt? Gee, you think? <laughs> I'm that to me, it makes sense that you would actually have flying dinosaurs be able to fly away from an island. Once you have an aviary, you've kind of eliminated the fact that they could stay landlocked. But then again, we have the dino jaws at sea, so I guess being that they could swim, you should also have been able to get off the island. I, I don't have an issue with it, and I do like the callback. All right. Scale on 1 to 10, what do we give Jurassic Park 3? Adam, the newbie to this film, you go ahead and go, sir. This is one that I was interested to visit, especially never seeing it before. I don't know how I would have felt seeing it back when it came out in theaters. I wasn't a preteen, I wasn't a little kid, but I know how it is when I've watched it now. It's got a flimsy plot, it's got flimsy reasonings, it's got some very base characters, everything is rote. But you know what, and kind of go with it that way. I think taking itself less serious than The Lost World might be the benefit of this. Lost World did not feel like it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Jurassic Park 3 does not feel like it was directed by Steven Spielberg. But you know what? This one wasn't. That's kind of the difference here. As much as it may be a lesser film than the ones that came before, it is enjoyable in its B-moveness, and I can enjoy that way. It is it is filled with actors I like, and characters that I don't. So that's a weird dichotomy there. The people that they hired for this film to be on screen, I think is it's saving grace. The dinos don't look good, period, throughout. Whether they're CG or they're animatronic, between the two, it is really a subpar look for this film. But I like the characters, at least, that they put in. We don't even get a finale of what happens to the dinosaurs. Like, did this dinosaurus die? Did it survive? Does it get off the island? Like, it's funny that it just kind of ends really quick here, and the movie is over. Like, we don't get a resolution. But it's it's fine. I mean, kind of a Godzilla movie. You go into it just for seeing dinos chase humans around the island, and it's satisfying that way. I can't say that it's any worse than two, and I think that the people in it might make it more rewatchable than two, even if the dinos don't. So I think I'm going to give it the same score, which is a five. Like, hey, you know what? It's part of the Jurassic Park series. But as much as it's got the same score as two, I think I would watch this one as opposed to that just for the people in it. All right. What was your score? Five. Solid five. Five. Five out of ten. From no highs, Adam. no lows. It must be five. That was actually a little higher than I was expecting, considering this podcast. Matt? Now, for a summer movie, I think this is the equivalent of going on a roller coaster that has... No huge drops, but is full of bunny hills. And what I mean by that is it coasts along at a good speed. It doesn't 
make you wait in line too long to get on the ride. And the set pieces that are here are really cool and provide that acceleration to get you through the 90 minutes. I'm glad that they didn't feel the need to double down on what the Lost World did and make this some kind of allegory for, I don't know, something, whatever they have not mined just yet. But at the same time, I don't think it does anything to where I can staunchly recommend it as peak adventure movie going. But I like it the most of the three for whatever that's worth. So I'm going to land on a seven on 10, go in, eat your popcorn. You'll, you'll probably enjoy yourself, but I think sometimes the expectation game can be your, your own worst enemy. If you go in thinking this is going to be one of the greatest things you will ever see, you should have removed that notion when you read the words Jurassic Park three. <laughs> uh, some part threes are pretty good. This one, I wouldn't say it's great. I wouldn't say it's terrible. It's somewhere in between. You know, I, I've said since the beginning that I, I don't think Joe Johnston is a very good director. He can set up set pieces, and he sets up some pretty good set pieces here. What he can't set up, though, is us really caring for characters and building a relationship that we can really get behind. There's nothing here that makes me want to root for anybody except Alan Grant, who has been established previously. I think Sam Neill's fun here. In fact, Sam Neill has come out in the press and said that I think people should give this one another look. It's one of the most underlooked films on my resume, and I would agree with that. I, I do. There are things here to really like, but there are other things that I look at and I'm just like, why? <laughs> the talking dinosaur is just ridiculous to me. I don't care what people can say about the PTSD that went with Alan <laughs> on that island. When I look at that particular scene, I just, I find it to be so ridiculous. It sneaks up on me every time because I haven't seen this movie too many times. And when it does, I'm like, oh God, thank God we don't get talking dinosaurs in this movie. Other than the set pieces, there's nothing to really grasp onto. This is the definition of a B movie. We've said it so many times in this podcast, but it's true. It is zero, almost zero plot with a lot of dino action. And this is a big 90-minute chase through this island. And if that's what you really like about these movies, it's all you. There's some decent blood here. We get a little bit of a gore going on with these dinosaurs, but it's still, you know, it's PG-13. And you know what? A few years later the sci-fi network would make a pretty much a, a killing, no pun intended, on movies like this where you have these big, massive creatures chasing these humans through a whole bunch of different places. And, you know, it's fun for what it is, but at, at, at that end, I want to go ahead and give it a six because the action's enough to keep me entertained, but there's nothing character-wise with the exception of Alan that I really like. So six out of ten for me on Jurassic Park 3. All right, I want to hand the reins to the schedule maker of this podcast to tell us what's coming up next, because I think we're going to be carrying on with something we started earlier in the year, aren't we, Matt? Yeah, we're going to put Jurassic Park in the pathway of a comet, so it's going to get wiped out and we'll bring it back later, because we're going to go back to another franchise that got resurrected multiple times. Uh, we're going to go back to Superman. And I hate saying that, because the first movie we have to review <laughs> does not have Superman in the title. In fact, the first two movies in this retrospective don't, in, in part two, do not have anything to do with Superman outside of brain recognition. All right, if you know Superman, you know that there was a movie called Supergirl, not the TV show, there was a movie. And there was also a movie starring Shaquille O'Neal that we're going to have to talk about for the same reason that we talked about Catwoman. Yep. Uh, oh, Steel, no. Mm -hmm. Steel is part of the canon. And oh, God. It, it would be wrong if we didn't do it. 
And even after that, we're going to see Superman Returns and Man of Steel, so it's not like we're going on to greener pastures. <laughs> At least I don't think. Who knows? Maybe a revisit will surprise us. But we are going back to Superman, and then we're going back to... Or can go back to Star Wars, and then we're doing The Exorcist, assuming the new one comes out. Crazy few months coming up. As as far as Superman goes, we'll talk about it next week. But Superman was supposed to be in Supergirl, but that's something I will save for next week, and I do have memories of it. Adam, do you have memories of Supergirl? I remember my dad being really excited about Supergirl <laughs> coming out. But that's kind of my big thing. Like I, I remember it. I remember Helen Slater. I remember, in general, people just being excited at that time that there was this kind of big budget, beautiful woman, you know, Supergirl movie being made. And then the movie came out, and I remember that movie disappearing really quick. But I remember it being, the excitement was at least there-ish for the time. That'll be next week, and boy, oh boy, I mean, we have The Exorcist, and then there's so many things going on on the site. God, we have more new releases. Football season's almost here. I know Matt's just chomping at the bit to talk about the Jets. Everything's coming up on the site. And, boys, I could not do it without you. I'd like to thank you. And until next week, when we go back to Krypton with Supergirl, no force on earth or heaven could get me to quit this podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. See, not so bad. Join us next week for an entirely new review. We need more. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a look at some of our other retrospectives, where we delve film by film into such other franchises as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the films of the DC Universe featuring Batman and Superman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, and so many more. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. What are you looking for? It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. This is how you make dinosaurs? No, this is how you play God. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. You recording this thing? Edited by Garrett. Be 
surprised what people can do when they when they have to. Voiceovers by Adam. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. boys cannot wait for this one uh you guys ready just just jump into it huh mm-hmm. stupid white people part three <laughs> <laughs> they, they did a whole bunch of movies and around this time they had done a movie with laura dern oh god what was the name of that movie they did with her fuck matt do you know the one i'm talking about um, I'm trying to think. What wasn't one of the movies Alexander Payne directed? Was it? Oh no, it was Citizen Ruth. Citizen Ruth, yeah. They did Citizen Ruth with Laura Dern. <laughs> but I thought she was going to play a bigger part in the movie, as did Laura Dern. But she came in because Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor helped work on the script, and she really liked uh, being in Citizen Ruth, which is a very good movie if you've ever seen it. Yeah, I thought Matt? she was going to be a bigger oh, part too. Go ahead. Yeah, Say I say that again. Was... I stepped on it. Yeah, I thought she was going to be a bigger... (laughs) So we're seeing a conversation here where Ellie is learning from Alan that Alan says... I'm sorry. We're seeing a little conversation here where Alan... (laughs) I also love how they treat the Spinosaurus in this movie like Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just shows up. Yeah, from the remake where it's got teleporting powers. Uh, don't make me go back to that remake. That was a painful retrospective to do. <laughs> I mean, just, it, yeah, we did the same movie thirteen fucking times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh.